0: Say a word of prayer. Father, we need illumination. We need edification. We need help. As we open your most holy word for your people, we ask for your manifest presence to be with us. We ask for spiritual nourishment. And I pray that you would help us to receive the word with humility and meekness and help us to be light. In life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a high school degree. I have two undergraduate college degrees, and I also have a seminary degree, so it's safe to say that I've done more schooling than I ever thought I would or ever wanted to do, and throughout my education and throughout schooling, I've had to write a number of papers, many, many papers, and a good teacher and a good instructor doesn't just say do this and doesn't guide you but a good educator will show you how to write a good paper and one of the things that you need to write a good paper is often is a thesis statement a thesis statement or a purpose statement a thesis statement is essentially a one sentence clear crisp sentence of what this paper is about and what you're defending Believe it or not, many of the biblical writers and many of the books of the Bible have a thesis statement that the author is trying to say, this is what I'm arguing. This is, I could sum up the entire book from this one sentence. And right now I'm going to give you the thesis statement of the Gospel of John before we journey in it for much of the year. And it sounds like this. It comes from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, where John says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole point of the book of John. He's writing to people, and he's trying to encourage them to believe that Jesus is God, and by believing in that, they could have eternal life. I bring this up because, as Pastor Mark mentioned earlier, we're starting this new series in the Gospel of John. It's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all true. The Gospel is essentially a biography of Jesus' life where we see what he said and what he did, and we learn more about him. And before we get to our passage, which is in your bulletin, John 1, 1-5, I just want to say a quick short overview of this book to give us all a foundational knowledge of what the Gospel of John is about. And as you might guess, it's written by John, the Apostle John. It's not always a giveaway because Titus is written by Paul, and a lot of people think Titus is written by Titus. No, it's written by Paul. And The Gospel of John is written by the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. He's the Apostle whom, uh, he, he writes, the one that Jesus loved. He's the son of Zebedee. He's also the same person who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. Revelation, not revelations, no S, just revelation. I've heard a lot of people say revelations over the years, just one revelation. The theme, we can only take one revelation after you read that book. The theme of John is an accurate presentation of who Jesus is. That's what it's about. One scholar says it's about showing us why one should become a Christian, how to become a Christian, and what it means to be a Christian. This has utter relevance for anyone who is a follower of Jesus. And I would say if you have a non-Christian family member or friend or someone that you're trying to share the light with, you're trying to figure out which book of the Bible I should point them to, I would, I would point them to the Gospel of John. Other quick themes as we see a big emphasis on the Trinity. The clearest articulation and explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity is found in the Gospel of John. And, and what we also find is that in the Gospel of John, uh, it's not one of the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same or similar, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospels are often called the synoptics because they write from a same or similar angle, but not John. John gives us new material, all true, but he gives us a different angle at Jesus and what he said and what he did that's not found in the other Gospels. How rich our canon of Scripture is how blessed we are to have this gospel in our Bible. I I would argue that in addition to Romans, the gospel of John is the most influential New Testament book. And in the book, John regularly defends the full deity of Jesus, that he's fully God. And since Jesus came, and even now, there are many who continually attack that claim that don't want him to be God. They want him to be something else. So this book is so relevant for us today in so many ways. If you pick up the Gospel of John and read it over and over again and come with eager expectation on Sunday mornings throughout the year to listen, maybe even get a study Bible and read the footnotes along the way, your soul will be deeply blessed. This is one of the most powerful books of the entire Bible. And so with that, we turn to our passage, which is the first five verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. you regularly use the word believe incorrectly. If I asked you, are the Cardinals going to start spring training soon? Or are the St. Louis Blues playing again tomorrow night? Or are the St. Louis Battle Hawks going to start playing soon? You might say, I believe so. No, you don't believe so. You don't know so. You, a, a more appropriate answer would be, I'm not sure, or I don't know. We often use the word believe very weakly and very broadly. We often use it to mean uncertainty, or we use it when we are like 75% sure, but not 100% sure. But in the Bible, the word believe is a very strong word. In the Gospel of John, the word believe is mentioned 98 times. One book written by two authors said that if they could summarize the book in one word, it would be believe. But believing is not merely intellectually agreeing that there is a God and God exists. That's not biblical belief. The half brother of James, uh, the half brother of Jesus, James, he writes this. In his book, James, James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So he's putting to death any notion that merely agreeing that there is a God somehow saves you. Even demons believe there is a God. So we have to define what belief is, and biblical belief sounds like this. It is placing the entirety of your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and living in such a way that evidences this faith. Belief is displayed through faith and godliness. We should never have one without the other. It's important to know this because all humans are born with a sense inside that God is real and we exist to know him. Even the ones that deny him have a sense inside of them that they want to believe that there's something more. Thankfully, the, John points us in the right direction. And, uh, and this, the big idea of this sermon with these first five verses is that Jesus is God who brings light and life to the darkness. We see that he is God, and he brings life and light. First three words says, In the beginning... In the beginning was the word. You hear the first three words, in the beginning, and your mind as a reader, as you read that, should be drawn to Genesis. Genesis 1 is connected with John 1. The first three words of the Bible are, in the beginning. Some some gospels start with Jesus' birth, the virgin birth. Other gospels start with his ministry, But John is taking you way back, all the way to creation. In fact, before there was anything created, and he's saying that this word, this word was there in the beginning. So before anything was created, this word was there. This introduces us to one of God's attributes, which is called eternity, which in this context has nothing to do with heaven or hell. Eternity means that God has no beginning or no ending. Who created God? Nobody. When will God cease to exist? Never. The Bible never tries to prove God's existence. It's not some sort of scientific textbook that tries to persuade people to believe so much as that it just assumes that he does. And here in the beginning, we learn that this word was around, and the word is repeated three times, uh, and the word is Jesus. So let's remove all suspense right now. When, When John says word, he's referring to Jesus, even though the name Jesus is not mentioned until verse 17. Like a skilled writer, the apostle John is building suspense, He's a good writer, and he's trying to build suspense before he gets to his argument. Remember, this is not just five verses. This is 20-plus chapters. And he's trying to build suspense. And he says that this word, Jesus has many uh, various titles in the Bible, and one of them is word. Word has Old Testament connections and essentially just means God's self-disclosure. When you talk, when when you pray, how you spend your money, how you carry yourself in public when you talk to people, you reveal to the rest of us this is what you're like. And so when John says that Jesus is the Word, the ultimate self-disclosure of God, what he's saying is this is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. And he says that this Word was with God. He's with God, but he is God. He's distinct from God. This word is with God, and he's enjoying personal fellowship with him, but he's distinct from him. This this introduces us to the Trinity, and I'm not going to go in a big, elaborate explanation of it. because This is very, very deep stuff, but we can say this. One God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equally God, fully God. Just like when we praise the doxology, we say we praise you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equally God, but distinct in the roles and ministries. They play different roles, but they are equally God. And we're told right away that this word, who is Jesus, is with God, enjoying personal fellowship with him. I'm struck by the word with, just reminded of how Jesus was with father and spirit and how throughout his life he was with the disciples how God being with his people and his people making it a priority to be with him is very important we live in a day now where workaholism and busyness is prized if I ask you how are you doing you say oh I'm just busy I'm busy a lot of you retired people you say that as well other Those who are working, everyone, everyone's busy. Everyone's working hard. Everyone's doing stuff. We're so distracted by all these things. And yet one of the key themes of growing in Christ is being able to put aside the phone, put aside the email, put aside the distractions, maybe get up earlier, clear your schedule to be that community group, make Sunday morning worship service a priority of, in your life, doing whatever it takes to make sure that you are constantly with God. There would be very little spiritual growth without that. And so it's important for all of us to make time with God a huge priority. If Jesus regularly thought that it was necessary for him to get up early and pray, and you can see throughout the Gospels that he memorized a lot of the Old Testament If Jesus saw it necessary to do that, how much more is it important for us? The Word was with God, but He is God. The Word was God and is God. I was looking at religious literature uh, from another religion, and they have some same things, but mostly it's different. And I was reading their Gospel of John, Gospel, I use that loosely, and it was kind of a creepy book to read it, was, it gave me a weird feeling because there was so much error so much error so much heresy in this book and they take this verse John 1.1 1, 1, and they translate it and they say the word was a God a God one God of many gods lowercase g they totally don't think Jesus is fully God and that one small translation is the difference between right and wrong true religion and cult heaven and hell Recognizing that Jesus is divine, that he exists, is not good enough. Evangelical Christianity has always recognized that Jesus Christ is fully God. And Jesus is not only God, but he's also the one who created all things. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Once again, John is taking Genesis 1 in the beginning and he's continuing that theme of borrowing from the Old Testament into his gospel. And we're reminded of the fact of the various things that God created. Things like light, heaven, earth, the sea, vegetation, humans, sea creatures. If you read Genesis 1, you'll see all that. Who in the world was responsible for creating all that? Here it says it was Jesus. This is a staggering claim to think that Jesus was right there, the agent, creating everything. We sometimes think that Jesus doesn't enter the Bible until the virgin birth. Or some people say, you know, Jesus, uh, the Old Testament, you know, that beginning part of the Bible, Jesus is not there anywhere, but you can find him in the New Testament. No, 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 Jesus is everywhere in Scripture. He was right there in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 1, creating everything. Of course he's in the Old Testament. He's not just a New Testament God. He's the point of all of Scripture. And he's the one who created all things. Time Magazine had a magazine covered entitled, Who is Jesus? Inside of the magazine they had various questions like, Who was he? What did he come to do? Did he recognize that he was God? Did he re- when did he realize that he was going to die? Lots of various questions. Very intriguing to read. Um, perhaps not everything was correct, but uh, at least someone was talking about it. And the mostly American audience for Time Magazine has various views of Jesus and who he is. For many in our country, Jesus is a philosopher or a hippie or a good moral teacher, or just a good guy with good teaching, but many just want to keep him over there and not really say that he's fully God. The issue is that is that in Jesus' teaching, he claimed to be God. So anyone says that he's a good teacher, but not God, clearly hasn't read any of his teachings. Because over and over, he declares himself to be God, and he says stuff like, Live for me. Be willing to die for me. Make me more important than family and friends and money and career and success. If you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and deny yourself and no longer live for comfort or for the world's approval, but for me. Who would say that? C.S. Lewis is a famous writer, and he concluded he was an atheist and then he became a Christian. And he studied the teachings of Jesus, and he said that Jesus could only be three things. A liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. No one would say these big statements if they weren't the Lord, if they weren't the God of the universe. But Jesus is. Some of you are wondering how all this theology and all this biblical truth is applying to you. The first few verses of John are some of the most important verses ever written in all of literature. And they are unapologetically very theological. And you're saying, great, I believe in everything you're saying right now. Maybe most of you are saying that. You're like, how does this apply to me? Uh, Later on in the first chapter of John, we, we learn that this God, this Word, became flesh. He was with God. But he was willing to leave heaven to become flesh and take on human form and be rejected and suffer and die and rise from the dead. If you're a disciple of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And there might be a frustrating child, a frustrating grandchild, a difficult financial situation, a work situation, and we're reading all these lofty theological things And you think, oh, God is way up there. He can't help me. He is way up there, but if you're a believer, he lives in you. And he's not just some big God, although he is, but he's also a very personal God, an intimate God, who wants to help you if you would call out to him. Not only that, he can identify with your struggles, many of them, because he himself suffered many things. So don't think this is just, oh, theology that doesn't apply to life. No, 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 this this gives us hope that this wonderful God became flesh and can identify with me. Other people say, uh, you know, this country is in big trouble. I've heard many people say that if we don't start making some changes, we're going to go downhill. Lots of people say that there's a lot of anxiety and fear, and I can feel some of that too. I've had older pastors uh, tell me, they're like, oh, you're a young pastor. I'm like, yeah. They like, wow, well, I would never want to be you. am like, thanks a lot. You're encouraging. I know who not to go to now for inspiration. And then I sort of ask him, like, oh, tough t- tough times now. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a pastor in these days. And I'm just like, all right, I'm going to get away from this guy. Not helpful at all. Also, being a parent in this generation, uh, Many people have told me various things. Oh, it wasn't like this when I was growing up. Oh, you're gonna have it worse. And just some of that might be true, not exactly the most helpful thing to say to people. But you get a you get a sense, even from religious leaders or other people, of feeling like, what is gonna happen? There's always this anxiety and turmoil, and there's various politicians and various causes that do very good work. Praise God. But We need to look a little deeper, and our biggest issue is not a few self-help books or a new diet, but it's ultimately our eternity and ultimately a lordship issue of of recognizing who is God and who is not. I was listening to a podcast, and the the podcast, people on the podcast were giving various reasons of uh, America's prosperity over the years. And they identified three things, two will remain nameless, but one of them was Christian faith. So this is one of the reasons why we have done well over the years, because of Christian faith, because people come to church, they recognize Jesus is God, and they live like it throughout the week, and this has blessed our society. And so all these other things are helpful, yes, indeed, but what we need more than anything is for more church planters and churches to be started, and more of God's people to act like God's people What we need is people to pick up John chapter 1, verse 1, and recognize that it's true, and live like it. We learn from this one verse, these first couple of verses, who Jesus is, but we also learn what he comes to bring. And there's many things, but here in this passage, John says that he comes to bring light and life. Verse 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and life are metaphors. John is continuing the Genesis 1 theme. Remember, God created light. God created life. So he's sticking with the Genesis 1 theme. They would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life, but he'd be made right with God if they would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life, but not just to right with God, If they would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life. But not just eternal life God. If they would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life. But not just eternal life life now. If they would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life. But not just eternal life life now. If they would believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life. But not just eternal life life now. For we all believe in him. He's come to bring eternal life. But not just eternal life life now. Life now. For we all exist, He's come to bring eternal life, but not just eternal life, life now. For we all exist to know, He's come to bring eternal life, but not just eternal life, life now. For we all exist to know God, He's come to bring eternal life, but not just eternal life, life now. For we all exist to know God and to bring eternal life, but not just eternal life, life now. For we all exist to know God. And knowing God and making him known is the plan A for every believer. Jesus comes to bring life, but he also comes to bring light. There's a famous Christmas passage we say over Christmas from Isaiah who who writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We bring that up at Christmas and that points to Jesus, who comes to bring light. A light functions in a dark world to show them the correct path to take. If you're hiking and you, at night and you don't have a light, it's not a good thing. If you don't have a flashlight, you might run into some things. You might fall or trip. But if you have a light with you when you're hiking or camping at night, you can see where to go. The light functions to show us the correct path to take. But the light also exposes. It exposes sin. If your grandkids or if a group of teenagers were in a dark room doing things they shouldn't be doing and you walked in and turned the light on, they would feel exposed. That's part of the function of the light, to expose evil, to expose the wrongness, not to make people feel shame or guilt for being on the wrong side, but to show them, hey, you're in need of a Savior, and I've come to do that. That's the purpose of part of why Jesus came, to show us how to live, but also to expose the darkness of a dark world. We're told that the darkness has not overcome the light. The word overcome is in past tense. Overcome could be translated grasp or understood. He's saying the darkness does not understand, does not grasp the light. Why do Christians have a certain view on sexuality and ethical living? Why do Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Why are Christians generous? Why do Christians take a few hours on a Sunday to be with God's people? There's a lot of mockery to Christian faith and part of that is to be expected because those in darkness don't understand the light. They cannot. Apart from God's help, they won't. They will continue to mock and criticize, and our job is not to judge or try to belittle people, but to share the light with them. The word shines is in present tense, so shines, still shining. Overcome, past tense, that's done. The darkness tried to defeat the light, The darkness has been defeated through Christ. But the shining is still going on today. The Father sent the Son to shine His light in the world. And now if you're a disciple of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sending you to continue to shine this light, so to speak. Some of you work in a dark work environment. Perhaps you have a church personality and then a work personality. What you are at church on Sundays is a little bit different than what you're what you are at work on Monday mornings. Let me just encourage you just to be the same on Sunday as you are throughout the week. There's many probably who use God's name in vain at work, who do unethical things, who are far from God. You might get a sense that they love that lifestyle and they want nothing to do with God, and in some measures that might be true but in some measure it's not true because every human is created with a deep sense that God is real and they exist to know him. Part of being a light at work, and no doubt it starts with first being competent because if you're not competent, no one's going to care what you have to say at all. If you're not skilled at what you do, no one cares about what you have to say. It's First and foremost, be good at your job, to excel at your job, to have skills, to add value. But, first, but also from there, it's to shine your light and to live differently. And hopefully people will ask you questions about why you're different. If you are actually doing this, being a light, people will notice. And you can have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Invite them to church. You'll feel nervous. I get nervous too. I feel awkward too. I know that feeling. You might tremble. You might wonder if you said the right words. I get like that too. I know what that's like. Just put yourself out there and see God work by being a light in a dark work environment. Part of sharing your life is to Share your heart, your energy, your time with those around you. But it's not just those who work jobs, who work full-time or part-time, who are retired. Anyone in this room, if you're a disciple of Jesus, we should all consider how can I be a light in this environment in my society so that other people might see what I have so that they would want it too. It's the only correct solution. I was reading a book and uh, the author mentioned a hypnosis a hypnosis is someone who hypnotizes people i've seen people hypnotized before at various college events i'm not sure if it's real or not i haven't done the study on it but you know some people believe in it and this hypnosis was promising prosperity, success and health if you would just buy his product for 3 easy installments for 39.99 And I just read that, and I thought, oh, man. It's not just hypnosis. There's other things you see on Facebook or social media, various people in the world. there's, There's this understanding universally with people that there's something wrong. But the solutions that are often put forward are trite and do nothing to help. What is the ultimate solution to our big problem? The Gospel of John will tell us, not just in these verses, but all the verses in his Gospel, that this Word, who was God and is God, has come to dwell among his people to bring life and light to a dark world through his perfect life, death, and resurrection It is through this word that we can truly have life and light. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you took on flesh and brought life and light. Lord, help us to be godly not just on Sundays, but all throughout the week. Please give us boldness and strength to want to be light and to spread this light in life. Lord, help us to believe these truths. Help us for those who are suffering and struggling, all these theological things that we just talked about. Help this to apply to our hearts. Lord, help us to draw near to you. I pray that you would draw near to us. In Jesus' name, amen.